during a Lenten season, I guess many of you were thinking of what to fast from, and I think a lot of it, the decision was already made for us during this time of pandemic, that some of you have found that you're fasting from recreational things or food items um, that you didn't even think about because things have been more challenging to get access to. And I encourage you to use this time, a time to focus on Easter, a time to focus on our relationship with Christ, using those times of being um, unable to do the things you're usually doing and channeling that time to get closer to Christ. Uh, I also want to encourage you to continue to give the almsgiving as well as the praying for the Lord to look and see, for the Lord to remember, for us to continue reading through Lamentations and our, our reading as well. Um, and we are so grateful of your generosity. It has allowed us to continue with our homeless breakfast, many of the services that were provided to our homeless community have been postponed or canceled for the time being. And our staff and our volunteers have felt pretty strongly that that needs to continue. So the way that we've been doing it is not your formal sit down breakfast that we've had in the past, but they are asking people who come by to stand six feet apart and collect their breakfast sandwich or burrito and then continue on down the line as to not gather. So thank you so much for providing for that. When we look at Palm Sunday, oftentimes we look at it as some really victorious event. And, and we continue with that. And as Nathan was leading us in worship with Hosanna, a word that was cheered uh, during this time, um, we have to also look at this as just a brief victory for Jesus. And of course, part of this everlasting victory, but think about if Jesus just stopped there, did not go through Holy Week. What if Jesus didn't go through Gethsemane and the cross, the tomb? What if Jesus didn't go through his version of Lamentations 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, what we've been looking at during our time of Lent? Because there was a lot of misery, a lot of suffering before we get to the empty tomb. I want to pose that Palm Sunday was similar to Lamentations 3, verses 22 through 24, in that it's a brief reminder of victory before Jesus goes through the Passion. Let's look at verse 22 through 24. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And then the people go through anguish and misery again in Lamentations chapter 4 and chapter 5. And perhaps this is some of us willing to celebrate, party, participate in the fun of a Palm Sunday, and yet not realize that there's still Gethsemane, the cross, the tomb, before the ascension. Many of us have had the Palm Sunday experience where it was fun and exciting with the palm branches and whatnot, but let's not forget the eternal victory that is in Calvary. 
So let's take this morning to look at the gospel accounts of Palm Sunday and, and hear what the scriptures have for us today. And we won't point out every difference since each gospel writer gives us their account, which gives us a more comprehensive picture of the event. But let's just take a look at a couple similarities. Each gospel points out how this was prophetic, that Jesus fulfilled Old Testament prophecy in his arrival, even in the manner of his arrival. Each gospel also reveals to us Jesus's identity as Messiah, even though Jesus wasn't the Messiah people wanted. The people wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Rome. A Messiah who would arrive on a war horse and quickly put things in such a way that they would no longer be an oppressed, suffering people. And that's just simply not how Jesus arrived. He arrived on a donkey with a message of peace. In Luke's gospel account, in Luke 19, you'll read in verse 37 that Jesus made his way down the Mount of Olives and he sees Jerusalem. He does this quite often because that's the way you go to Jerusalem from Bethany, and he visited Bethany quite often. He had some really good friends there. And on this route, there's this very, very nice grand view of the city, actually. And it wasn't the first time that Jesus was on this route to Jerusalem. You know, back in chapter 13, Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, Luke 13, verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. You fast forward to Luke chapter 19, verse 41, and we find Jesus once again lamenting over Jerusalem. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. And in verse 42, it tells us why Jesus wept. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. There was this really huge opportunity loss. They had this immense privilege of witnessing Jesus's ministry firsthand, and they didn't grab hold of, of God when he was right in front of them. They saw him in the temple. They heard him teach. They witnessed his miracles, but they still didn't believe. John chapter 1, verse 11, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus wept. He wept because there was this unreciprocated love. He wept because there were so many people who knew better, but they rejected him anyway. That huge opportunity was lost and he wept. How does Jesus look at the Bay Area today? Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. Our cities think that we know what would make for peace, but we don't. How we long for peace today, yet so many don't have it because Christ is rejected. And on that Palm Sunday, with Jesus entering the city, some of it was real, to people, but a lot of it was just for show. 
many who cheered and celebrated without any understanding of who Christ really is, just caught up in the moment with this very superficial understanding of Jesus. This arrival was largely misunderstood at the moment. People witnessed or heard about the miracles, the miracle in raising Lazarus from the dead, and they thought, you know, if Jesus could raise the dead back to life, surely he could overthrow this oppressive regime. They thought that Jesus would give them what they wanted, and it's so easy for people to cheer for someone who gives you what you want. But Jesus saw through that. Why did he weep? Because he knew that those shouts of Hosanna were going to turn to shouts of crucify him. These same people who showed their love for Jesus here would soon show their hate. And it's so easy for people to praise you one day and then to vilify you the next. He saw through this superficial spirituality. Why did Jesus weep? Luke 19, verses 43, 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He knew of the judgment to come because they did not receive him. And this all came true when the, when the Roman Empire crushed them, just like the Babylonian Empire crushed them when we read through our Lenten series through Lamentations. The Lord does not enjoy this. Turn to Lamentations 3, starting in verse 31. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will... He will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love, for he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. What about Oakland? What about the Bay Area? I think Jesus weeps for similar reasons. He weeps as people who seek peace are looking for it all over the place except through Jesus Christ from whom peace may be found. Jesus weeps as he looks at those who celebrate Jesus, praise him with hosannas, cheer for him, welcome him, until those same people find out that Jesus didn't come for the reasons they thought he came. And then that love turns to hate. That approval turns to vilification. Jesus weeps because their understanding of him was not of Jesus, but of themselves. Jesus sees through all those superficial acts, all those superficial thoughts and speeches and motivations and intentions. Jesus knows our hearts and what is truly of him and what is false. And Jesus weeps because of the judgment to come. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many right mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, 
I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Let's continue with Matthew's gospel and what he recorded for us as he was led by the Holy Spirit to record these things on the day of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. So let's take a look at Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 10. And it reads, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? See, the presence of Jesus causes a stir. Have we been stirred? Will we be stirred at the compelling truth of Jesus, which will cause a stir among those who are around us? It's a stir that caused the people to ask this question, who is this? A question of Jesus' identity, and this is something we all have to come to terms with. Today, we need to reassess who Jesus Christ is to us. If someone asked you today, who is Jesus? How would you answer? This is an all-important question, and there isn't a more significant question to be asked. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Everyone is sinful. Each one of us is guilty of sin, and we need a Savior. The prophet Isaiah wrote this in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Without Jesus Christ, each one of us is dead. And the all-important question is, who is Jesus? One of the problems many run into prior to addressing this question is that, is that there isn't a stir. It's not disruptive to who people think they are in relation to, to God. There's no stir. And then to address who Jesus is, well, the people in Jerusalem had everything they needed to see who Jesus is, but they still couldn't see him. If they couldn't see Jesus then, is it all that surprising that many can't see Jesus today? What's holding us back from having Christ victorious over our entire being? Sin? Pride? Fear? Our relationship with Jesus Christ isn't done on our own terms. If it is, your relationship with Christ is similar to the many who had that Palm Sunday experience, this short-lived experience with Jesus that wasn't life-changing for them. Jesus Christ isn't interested in a short-term relationship. He died so that you and I can have an everlasting one with him. One that transforms our life. One that revolutionizes our life forever. Invite Jesus Christ into your life today. Not temporarily, like those who cried Hosanna. And it didn't do anything for them. But crying out to God, Hosanna, 
Lord, save me, with a cry of faith for Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. Not to do something that you want, but because of who he is. Who is this? He's king. Jesus is king, and the kingdom he is king over is different than what we have in mind. Our king rides on a donkey into Jerusalem. Everyone else walked into Jerusalem during this feast, but Jesus rode on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. A king. Different in his mode of transportation as well as his manner. A king's appearance and arrival are typically full of pomp and splendor and where the king is, is set high for everyone to see, but then isn't approachable by the commoner. And it's not so with Jesus who, who arrives with gentleness, humbleness, and this is what our king says to his people. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He's not like other kings. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 25, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is our king. A king who wears a crown of thorns, not of precious metals, not of jewels. Other kings look toward their lives because that's all they could offer as their death ended their reign. Our king looked at his death because he conquered death and there would be no end to his reign. A different kind of king for a different kind of kingdom. A kingdom not of this world. Living under our king is full of conflict because there are powers and principalities. People who want to overthrow Jesus constantly. And it's this battle to serve our king. It's extremely difficult to do the work of the kingdom. The work of the kingdom is to proclaim and to bring good news of the kingdom of God. How does one even gain entry into the kingdom of God? John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? 
Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lift up the serpent into the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Entry into the kingdom of God is through belief. Whoever believes in him believes. Not just the use of our minds to settle on a truth that we then apprehend and understand and affirm in the way that we look at the arrival and departure board at an airport. And we believe that what it tells us is true. You can stand there all day looking at that departure board, thinking that what it tells you is true and it's accurate. But it doesn't do you any good if you don't board your flight. There needs to be a personal commitment, a submission to that information and obedience to go and trust what that board says will happen. Otherwise, you're just standing in front of a screen staring at it and not going anywhere. When the Bible talks about believing, it's all of it. It's, it's more than just knowledge and staring at a book and putting that what's inside the book in your mind that Jesus is Lord and Savior. It's not just information for others to, to, to get on the flight. It's, it's for you. It's for me to get on that flight. That Jesus bore my sins on that cross and we are righteous only in Jesus. The result of believing is we're welcomed into God's kingdom and then we experience everlasting life with him. The flip side of this is that those who don't believe will perish and not have eternal life. Without Jesus Christ, we will spend an eternity apart from God. God loves to save people. He sent Jesus, his only begotten son, our king, to wear a crown of thorns, to humbly enter into Jerusalem on a donkey, to die a death that we deserve, to rise victoriously from the grave for you, for me. Do you believe in Christ and what he has done for you? 
We're not justified by what we do. We're not justified by what has been done in us. When you ask someone why they believe they're going to heaven, typically it's two reasons that are given. One is because of what I've done, that I've I've done more good than I've done bad, therefore I'm a good person. Another reason you'll hear, and this is typically of Christians and not so much of people that aren't believers in Christ, but you'll hear from them what was done in me. When someone relies on what has happened in them, that they've experienced some spiritual thing, then they need to start asking themselves a bunch of questions, a a bunch of really good questions, such as, am I properly convicted of my sins? Do I love people the way I'm supposed to? Have I lost my love for this world? Am I of the world, but am I in the world? Am I bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Do I have a vibrant prayer life? All these different questions start popping up. And if you ask yourself any of those questions honestly, and you're reliant on this experience of in me, you are going to be led to despair. Because who can confidently answer the Almighty God that our spiritual life is in perfect order? And it's actually a form of self-justification. I'm not going to heaven because of what I've done, but because of what I've experienced. Because of what happened to me. And no one's going to heaven based off of what they've done or what they've experienced. We don't get the peace of God from what we do or what we experience. Life is full of ups and downs, just like we looked at lamentations, mostly down for them. And thank God it's not based on what we do because we all fall short. Thank God it's not based on experience because think about the folks in lamentations. Decades of exile, some were born into it, some died in it. How do we we explain the peace of God in an instance like that? Entering into the kingdom of God is not based on what we do or what was done in me. It is completely, totally based on what was done for me. Justification is outside of us. It's not what was done by me or in me. It's what was done for me. Just simply think about the thief on the cross next to Jesus. What was done by him? Nothing. What was done in him? I mean, think about this. How much time did he really have to prove himself to God, to experience the fruit of the Spirit, to have a vibrant prayer life? He didn't have any chance to experience those things in him. He didn't have any time. If that's the case, then how did he go to paradise to be with Jesus? He believed. It was what was done for him. He believed in what Jesus did for him. Do you believe in what Jesus did for you? And this is really critical. Why? Because we all die. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, we all die. We all meet God. And when you do, you won't be able to justify yourself 
because it's not by what you did, it's not the experiences in you, it is only by what Jesus Christ was able to do and do it for you. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, verse 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Please don't let this Palm Sunday just be another Sunday of a short-lived moment of, Yay, Jesus. Yay, triumphant Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Your life depends on it to believe what Jesus did for you. And as we continue on this Lenten season, because Easter's not until next week, I ask that you would continue in it, that you would continue reading Lamentations, that you would continue to pray. Look, O oh Lord, and see. Look at, look at our conditions. Look at me. Look at the people that are suffering from what's going on right now. To continue to give. To continue to practice fasting. And I encourage you to read through the Passion of the Christ this week. To absorb the suffering of Jesus to continue to prepare our hearts for Easter. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we recognize that we are in desperate need of what you have done for us. Lord, I ask that you would reveal to us the things we need to repent of, that self-reliance, the self-confidence, I ask, Lord, for your mercy upon your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.